listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Uh, I've been thinking uh, all week about uh, Paul's words to, as he's penning the letter to the church in Rome, and he says uh, in chapter one, at the very beginning, he says, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I'm eager, I'm eager. And I've been kind of feeling that way because Last week we started, oh yeah, sorry, ushers, we, we've got Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, make sure to grab one, but just put your hand up because we want you to follow along in the Bible. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Steve Jan says or what Pastor Melvin says, it matters what God says in his word and we're gonna be turning there, so if you don't have an app on your phone or whatever, just grab a Bible. Um, uh, where was I now? Uh, gospel, yes, eager, I'm eager. Last week we began this journey in Ephesians chapter two. We'll get there in a, in a moment. Um, but you know how Paul ends. So he says, I'm eager to come to Rome. He hasn't gone yet, so he writes this letter that's 16 chapters. That's quite a letter. And then he ends chapter 16 by saying, um, my prayer is that you will have been strengthened by the gospel and that, that, that your strengthening of the gospel would lead to the obedience of faith. That would be my prayer here for you in Kelowna at Harvest. That as we think about the gospel this morning, the stunning great news of the gospel, that your heart would be strengthened to such a degree that it would bring about in your life the obedience of faith. So that's kind of my prayer as we're journeying through this. Uh, and uh, what a great uh, opportunity for me to be here with you again this morning. Um, Two years ago, almost two years ago, it will be in, in March, it'll be two years ago, I had the privilege of, of going to China for two weeks of ministry. Maybe that's all I'm going to say about that. But I spent a day in the city of Shanghai. We were in Beijing, and then in another city in the northeast part of China, and then we went to Shanghai. And, um, and Shanghai is an amazing city. I mean, Shanghai, uh, talk about a technology center, Shanghai is that. Maybe let's throw, that, throw the, the slide on here of Shanghai. Um, the middle slide there is uh, the first evening that I got to Shanghai. We were right on the river there, and I took pictures. And it is just like, you think that we're advanced in the West? Man, unless you've been there, you, you're going to realize we are not that advanced. You fly into Shanghai, and it's like, this is stunning, what, what I saw there. And I mean, the whole city of Shanghai, it's, it's wonderful, like 20 million plus people in the, in the city of in the city, wow, wow! Can we kind of cut that one out? That's awesome. And say that ten times fast. City of Shanghai. See how you do. <laughs> the, the city of Shanghai. Wow. Um, the guy that I was traveling with said uh, um, the day before we got there. He said, "What we should do is we should go to the Shanghai Tower, and you can see it on the on the left there. I took this picture." of the Shanghai Tower. The Shanghai Tower is amazing. It's uh, the second tallest structure, at least right now. There, I think there are a couple of buildings that are gonna surpass this here this year or next year maybe. But the second tallest structure or um, um, building in the world, 128 floors or stories. Uh, so for you metric people, 632 meters. That's over a half a kilometer tall. And for uh, you old-timers, 2,073 feet. It's a tall building. So we got in the elevator. We went to the top. The elevator goes 74 kilometers an hour. <laughs> it, it took us 40 seconds to get to the top. I mean, it is unbelievable. And so then we get to the top, and, and that's the picture. 
And you see this tower over here. I mean, these are not small buildings that you see in the foreground. And, and, and we're looking down at these massive buildings. I'm, I'm on the observation deck over here on, on, in that slide. It's, un, it's just an unbelievable experience. Uh, and when you're at the, on, on, in the Shanghai Tower on that observation deck and you're looking over the city, you have a completely different view of the city than when you're standing on the ground. I mean, on the ground, it's already stunning. But man, if you can loft yourself up to, you know, whatever it is, 600 plus meters above the ground in a building and look over the city, you have a completely different view. And, and the Bible is a stunning, stunning book. I'm so grateful to God for this here. You should be thankful to God that he has spoken to you. You can pick up the Bible in the morning and you can open it up and you can hear God speaking to you. That's stunning because this is God's word and he speaks primarily through this. And so if, if I could just say, could you, could you just take a, a, a bird's eye view of the Bible and look down, you're gonna get a different perspective from sort of flying over top of the Bible and, and you can summarize what some people have called the meta-narrative of the Bible or the big story of the Bible in four words. Here's the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the story of the Bible in four words. Creation, fall, rest, uh, re redemption, and restoration. And, and what God does from the very beginning is unfold this beautiful story. He is the creator, we know that. He creates everything in the beginning. All creation is his, he's in charge, that's important. If you don't understand that God is creator, you're never gonna have a high view of God. But if he's created everything, then he can demand anything he wants of his creation. That's a huge doctrine. That's a huge theological issue. And so he's creator, creates Adam and Eve. We know that, creates mankind, unlike any other creatures in his image. And he says of mankind, this is very good. Everything else is good, but mankind, very good. And God gives mankind, Adam and Eve particularly, gives them freedom. In other words, he gives them, a, he gives them volition or a will. Uh, and, and when Adam and Eve live out this will in perfect harmony with God, it is glorious. As long as they're, as long as they're choosing in, in this volition that God's given them to walk with God, it is a glorious thing. But we know what happens early on in the Bible. And we're in chapter three, the first three chapters, and everything falls apart because Adam and Eve sinned. And we talked about that briefly last week. And, and mankind chooses to rebel and disobey creator God. Sin enters and, and, and sin stains everything. And, and death is brought into the equation. And then God begins this plan of redemption. And, and this book primarily is that story, is the story of God's creation, the fall of mankind, and then this redemption story. And and the redemption story, you know where it, where it all sort of climaxes, where it all sort of is, it, it comes to a top like a, a crescendo of a, a song is at the foot of the cross, right? Because Jesus there, he dies on the cross, he takes your punishment, my punishment for my sinfulness. What I rightly deserve, Jesus takes there. And that's really not the exclamation mark yet because Jesus is taken off the cross, he's buried. And then three days later, that's where the exclamation mark is. Jesus rises from the dead, and because he's alive, that's why we're here today. We just finished singing that. He's alive. And because of his uh, life today, he offers to anybody in Kelowna 
who would bend their knee and humble themselves and say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you to be my bread, my water, my life. He gives eternal life. That's the story of redemption. And one day, this, it all climaxes or finishes with this restoration. One day, everything will be made right again. And we look to that day with great hope, anticipation, and joy. Restoration is coming. This, this earth is groaning. I believe that minus, I don't think God ever intended for this, this temperature to be like, like minus whatever it is today. I, well, maybe it was his plan. I don't know. But I just wonder if that's maybe not part of the curse. I know there's seasons and all that, but I don't know that you're supposed to walk outside and just be angry. I don't think that's how God created us, to just walk out. It's like, now I'm just angry because my face hurts. And, um, and it's actually not even that bad here in, in Kelowna or in the Okanagan. But, um, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, where we started last week, is a small representation of this grand or this big story, this meta-narrative of the Bible, And we saw last week that Satan's primary goal is to keep people blind from seeing this this story, this this meta-narrative, that there is a redemption that Jesus offers. If Satan can keep people's minds blind from seeing, we read it in 2 Corinthians last week, the glory of the gospel, uh, sorry, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's how it says. If, if, If Satan can keep people blind from not seeing light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus... He wins. And Ephesians chapter 2 sheds some light on this. And so last week, actually, let's turn in our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, let's read the first three verses. And this is just a quick summary of what we talked about last week. First three verses, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, period. And last week we saw there were three observations and sort of this, this shocking conclusion that we're all born spiritually dead, that we all follow the ways of this world, that we all follow the devil and disobey God, and the shocking conclusion is that there's not anybody sitting in this room or standing in this room today that is not under God's wrath when we're, when we're in our natural state, that Steve Jantz rightly and justly deserves God's anger and indignation and wrath because of my sinfulness. I deserve that. You deserve that. And, 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 and the problem is that we, we recoil with that kind of talk. We talked about that last week, that our pride certainly resists being told, hey, you're a sinner, you're wrong. I don't like that. The, you know, the, the, the natural Steve Jantz does not like that kind of talk. But another reason why we recoil uh, against this notion that God would actually be angry towards us is that we have a wrong focus, that, that, that we somehow resist our sinfulness because our focus is wrong. Now, now, Tim was gracious. Last week, I used an illustration of a doily. And, and somebody, I think, might have been Tim, or maybe Tim's wife said, you know, if you're not 40 years old, you probably don't even know what a doily is. Do you guys know what a doily is? Yes. Do you? Okay, okay, good, okay. So they were, were kind and bought some doilies for me. I don't know, this is awesome. So this is a doily. You remember the contrast? If we had a black doily and put it against the black background, you wouldn't notice it much. But if you took a black doily, and usually doilies are white like this one, 
uh, and, and put it, uh, a black doily against the white background, it would pop. You'd, you'd notice that there's, there's a contrast. And we looked at Isaiah, remember Isaiah in the temple? And he sees God's holiness and, and, and everything's shaking and, and the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And at that moment when, when Isaiah gets a glimpse of who God is, he recognizes what kind of a wretch he is. And he cries out and he says, woe is me, for I'm undone or I'm, I'm, I'm as good as dead. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And even in that story, God is gracious and cleanses Isaiah and the problem with his lips. Uh, I told you I was going to tell you, begin with a skunk story. So we lived in PEI, Sarah and I. It's where we began our ministry years ago. And um, PEI, um, there are no... There's not a lot of wildlife, but the, the kind of wildlife they do have, there's birds and they've got skunks. The birds fly in, and then they migrate out in the fall. The skunks never leave. And there are no natural predators in PEI for skunks. It's a terrible thing. We would drive from Georgetown, where we lived, into Charlottetown, probably about 35 miles. And um, it was rare for us not to at least come across one or two dead skunks along the road. And you know what that's like, right? I mean, you know there's a dead skunk coming because you smell the skunk long before. So, so skunks everywhere. You know, why, why did the PEI chicken cross the road to show a PEI skunk how it's done? Because they never made it. They're always getting killed and there's just, you know, so if you've been to PEI, I'm sure you've noticed that. We pull into our driveway one day in Georgetown and there is this fat, fat skunk waddling across our yard and I'm just so fed up with the skunk. So I do something that you probably could never get away with in Kelowna, but in PEI you do. I ran upstairs to my shop and I I got my 12-gauge shotgun in town. Sorry, for those of you who are, you know, all, I better, let's be careful. (laughs) I went outside, and I took care of the skunk. Let's just say that. And I, and now what do you do? Now the skunk is sitting in the yard. And so we just took it down to the wharf and fed the fish there in PEI. So there's my confession for you. You know what amazes me about a skunk? I don't think a skunk actually knows what he or she smells like. Like, how could that skunk actually walk around and be okay with themselves? But suppose for a moment, just for illustration purpose, uh, you could take your nose and your sense of smelling and put it on that skunk's face. You know what that skunk would say? Woe is me! I am undone! There comes the shotgun! This is terrible. In a similar way, we need, to, we need to get a glimpse of, we need to get a glimpse of how holy God is. And if we could just get his eyes for a moment, just like a skunk needs our nose to, to really get a, a sense of how terrible he or she smells, let's go with he. How bad he smells, he's never gonna recognize it. And the same thing for us that, that as, as, as we get to know our God through this, through the Bible, and he reveals himself here. He does reveal himself in creation as well. But as he reveals himself to us and we get glimpses of who he is, our hearts are going to be convicted with, the, with our own sinfulness and recognize I really am a wretch. And I actually do rightly and justly deserve God's indignation and wrath on me. And that's how Paul starts this chapter. That we're born dead, following the ways of this world. 
um, following Satan and Satan's plans and schemes. And because of all that, we actually are all, by nature, children of wrath. What a hopeless place to leave everything and the travesty of our sin and the enormity of our sin and the magnitude of our sin, the bigness of the consequence of our sin, I believe is always proportionate to the degree that we see God's holiness. And the greater God's holiness is in our life, the greater we're gonna recognize, my goodness, I really am a wretch. I really am a sinful person. So if you know Jesus this morning, you should be just quietly in your comfortable chair. You should be saying, Father, would you give me glimpses of your holiness so that I might throw myself in more desperation on you? If you don't know Jesus, you should say, would you give me a glimpse of, of how holy you are so that I could actually wrestle with some of my, my sinfulness and the deadness of my heart? And then we come to chapter two, verse four. And I think that um, we come to, and I mentioned it last week, two most amazing words in the English language. If we were just to close the Bible, you know, chapter, uh, verse three of chapter two, it'd be a discouraging life. I mean, what, what, what sense? God's angry with us. We're doing our own thing. We're rebellious. We're shaking our fist at God, and we're just saying, forget you. And then we read these two words, but God. Amazing words, but God. So let's pick it up, and, and let me read down to verse 10, and then what I'm gonna do is I'd just like to make two main observations, a couple of points under each one, and then how should we respond to this glorious message of the stunning great news of the gospel? So verse four, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that's future tense, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here's a verse that if you've been in a wana or in a, some sort of club, children's club, you will have memorized this verse. I'm sure you have. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This faith is a gift from God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for hand, beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what, what glorious news. We don't need to stay dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't need to stay in that position of God's wrath and his indignation and his anger uh, hovering over us. There's a way that we can be saved. And Paul, now, now he doesn't, it, it's not explicit here. He does not formulate his, his thoughts now by first introducing what, on what basis he can make these unbelievable statements. But in chapter one, he's already talked about it. And in chapter one, he talks about Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection. And so it's on the, on the foundation and on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross that Paul makes some outrageous statements. Not outrageous, stunning. They're stunning. They're beautiful truths. And so the first observation that I want you to see here is who God is. And so, so we're, we're now gonna look uh, in, in our sinfulness, in our following the path of the world. Now, now Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a little glimpse of who God is. And number one, he's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. It says it right there in verse four. But being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
Now, maybe we'll just fire all of them up. He's rich, in, and then I'll talk about them. He's rich in mercy, he's full of great love, and he's rich in grace and kindness. They're all there. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. By grace you've been saved. And then later down in verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So this, this is who God is. In this text, he's much more than this. But in these verses, we can see clearly that God is rich in mercy, he's full of great love, and he's rich in grace and kindness. Let me talk about mercy for just a moment. I love mercy. I love mercy. You should love mercy. Do you ever play mercy? Young people, you ever played mercy? I was talking to our 28-year-old son just this week. I was down in Vancouver with him, and he says, he's, I was talking about his older brother, Tyler, who's quite a bit, he's, Tyler's built a little bit more like me. Denver's as tall but skinnier, but he's strong. So my 28-year-old son says, I beat Tyler, who's 30 years old, in a game of mercy the other day. He's like, does this never end with brothers? Like they're adults, they have kids for crying out loud. And, and here they are, they're playing mercy. And, and you know the goal of mercy when, you got, when you're grabbing the other person's hand is to bend them so strongly that they're on their knees and what do they cry? Mercy, have mercy on me. And the idea of mercy is don't give me what I rightly deserve. Please have mercy on me. Because if you're the winner and you're in that position and you got that person on the ground on their knees and you got every right to just finish them off. Break those knuckles, pop them out of their sockets, or whatever you do, right? Now, you would never do that, but that's the idea. And so, so the person has to cry, please don't give me what I deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you rightly deserve. And what you rightly deserve, Paul has clearly said in these verses already, because you're dead, because you've followed the ways of this world, because you've left God, because you're following the path of the enemy, what you rightly deserve is God's wrath. What Steve Jantz rightly deserves for my sinfulness and rebellion against God is God's wrath to be poured out on me. But God, he's rich in mercy. He's not just merciful, he's rich in mercy. He's got a storehouse full of mercy for you so that you can call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, don't give me what I rightly deserve. What you deserve is is hell. You deserve to be damned. And God is rich in mercy. I used to tell our people in Winnipeg and the church I used to pastor, and somebody actually said it this morning coming in. I said, how you doing? And, they, and one, of our, one of the guys who prayed with us, I don't know, can't remember your name. Yeah. And you said, what did you say? How you doing? Better than I deserve. Why would somebody say that? Because what's your name, brother? George, because George knows what he deserves is hell. He knows that. But he knows God's been rich in mercy. So he says, how you doing? Better than I deserve anything. Hear me, Harvest Kelowna. Anything this side of hell is mercy. Is mercy. But he's not only rich in mercy, he's full of great love. Great love, even when we were dead in our sin, our rebellion, our hatred, enemies of God. In Romans chapter eight, Paul says we're a, we are hostile towards God. Like, we, like we're actually, we, we are angry towards God. That's unbelievable. And yet that's how our heart, your heart, my heart is described in the Bible. 
And uh, in his great love, he dies for us. We know that. Greater love has no one than this. We read in John 15 that someone laid down his life for his friends. And God, we read in Romans chapter 5, demonstrated his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, dead in our sin, hostile towards God, rebellious against God, shaking our fists at him, he demonstrates his love how? By sending Jesus to die for us. So full of, full of mercy, rich mercy, he's full of great love, and he's rich in grace and kindness. Those two kind of go hand in hand. And, and mercy and grace are, are two sides of the same coin. They really are close. They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're the same thing. Mercy and grace are so closely related where, where mercy is you don't get what you rightly deserve, Grace is getting something you don't deserve, kindness towards you. So God pours out his kindness towards you. He's, he's rich in grace. So he, number one, doesn't give you what you deserve, but secondly, he gives you something you don't deserve. Suppose Sarah and I are heading down here from Salmon Arm this morning, and that, there's a beautiful connection, connector there between Vernon and, and Clone and I. You know what I mean? You just have to go along the, hot, on the, the lake there, past Gasky's um, orchard. Now you can just go over top and they increase the speed limit to 100. And you know the temptation for any guy? It's like, I wonder how fast I could go on this stretch here. I, this didn't happen, but suppose on our way down today, I'm flying. It's like, okay, here we go. Let's, let's see what this Toyota Tundra can do. And, um, and we're doing 100 and whatever. I'm just over the speed limit. And all of a sudden I see the, the dreaded lights in my rear view mirror and I get pulled over. And the cop comes to my window. I roll it down. He says, insurance and, and um, driver's license. I hand it to him. And um, he goes back to his cruiser. This is not good. And he comes back and said, um, Mr. Jantz, where are you from? He knows where I'm from. He just saw my driver's license. I'm from Sunnybrae. Where are you going? I'm going to Kelowna. What are you doing in Kelowna? <laughs> I'm going to preach in a church this morning. And, and then he says this. He says, listen. He says, um, slow down. And hands me my driver's license and insurance. That's mercy. That's mercy. I didn't get what I deserve. What did I deserve? Uh, yeah, that was a little bit too fast. I, that response, who said that? <laughs> I did. I deserved a ticket. I deserved a ticket. Suppose now, just in, in your wildest imagination, he said, just hang on. I see your wife's here as well. Just give me 30 seconds. And he goes back to his cruiser, and we're looking at him. He's like, what is going on? And he comes back, and, and, and in his hand, he's got something, and he gives it to me, and he says, um, and while you're driving out of here slowly, here's a $100 gift card to the keg. Take your wife out for dinner. I mean, that would never happen, right? That would just never happen. But, but that's Grace. Mercy not getting what I deserve, and grace is getting something I don't deserve, and he gives me this gift card to the keg to take Sarah out for dinner. That's undeserved favor. Now, now 10,000 times greater than that simple illustration, which would, like if that were true, and I told you, it's like, that's unbelievable. Can I just tell you the story of the gospel? That's why it's called the stunning good news, great news, the stunning great news of the gospel is 10,000 times greater than that simple little illustration that not only does God lift his indignation and wrath and anger against you away from you, but in turn, he gives you 
eternal life. He gives, and we're going to look at this in a second, he gives you Christ's righteousness. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So that's who God is. Here's the second observation. What does, what does God do? Second observation is what God does. And let's just maybe pull it up there too. Number one, he makes us alive in Jesus. Secondly, he raises, up, raises us up with Jesus. And then finally, he promises us an inex, inexpressible or unbelievable future hope. Let me just talk quickly about these three. He first of all makes us alive in Jesus. And it says it right here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He makes us alive. The theological term for that is called, it's, it's regeneration. You're brought to life. You were dead. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural, this is a supernatural work. This is not a decision you make. This is not any human effort. You cannot bring something to life when it's dead. I mean, you could say, well, you know, if you do CPR long enough, you can bring something back to life. Well, in a sense, yes, but if, if somebody's been dead for like two days, you, in your own power, cannot bring anything to life. You cannot create life. Well, you can if you have a baby. Melvin talked about that earlier, I guess in that sense. But, but would there be anybody here this morning who would argue with me that that's not a supernatural act? Life itself, is, is that's supernatural. Um, and so we've got this, this supernatural thing that Jesus comes and makes life. He makes us alive. He regenerates us. And with a new heart come new desires and new affections. And the Holy Spirit, this is amazing, when we're regenerated, the Bible says that the Holy, Jesus comes and lives in us by his Holy Spirit. That's amazing. So if you know Jesus this morning, Jesus lives in you. By his Holy Spirit, he you have become now the dwelling place of God. That's an unbelievable truth that you're walking around Kelowna this afternoon. You're going to go to our Orchard Park Mall or whatever you're going to do. And watch, I guess football's over. You're going to do something. And you're going to do it with God living in you. Because you've been regenerated. You've been brought to life. Romans 8 says, the spirit, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. And so that's what God does. Secondly, he raises us up, raises us up with Jesus. He raises us up with Jesus. And this, all I can say is the mystery of what we would call the union with Jesus. There's this union that takes place, and we, I mean, we could spend so much time, Pastor Melton could spend weeks talking about what does this union, this mystical union of Christ look like in your life? But the moment that you are regenerated or brought to life, there is this union that happens and, and the Bible describes this as you being in Christ and Christ in you. And, and here the words that we read are, and he seats us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see it, with him and in Christ. And, and it this is talking about our standing and our position. And once again, two beautiful doctrines of the Bible are standing. Did you know that you have a standing this morning, a uh, like, like you're standing before God, we call that doctrine justification. And I've talked about justification here before as well, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but it's a legal term, it's a, ju a judicial word, and it simply means to be declared righteous. And Jesus does that for you. When, you, when he brings you to life, 
the, the theological term is that Christ's righteousness is imputed on you or placed on you. That's a supernatural act. So that when the heavenly father, this holy God that Isaiah sees in the temple and is terrified because of his sinfulness, this holy God takes the righteousness of Jesus and puts it on your life, covers you with it. So that when this holy righteous judge looks at you now, if you've been brought to life, he does not see your sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness. That's amazing. Because I guarantee some of you have sinned already this morning. And if you know Jesus, can I just tell you right now that God does not see that sin. He sees Christ's righteousness in you. It's a beautiful, stunning truth, great news of the gospel. We read in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him who to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him, that's that union, in him we've been made right the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Jesus, takes, Jesus on the cross takes my sin and when I trust him alone for my salvation, Jesus in turn gives me his righteousness. What a trade, what a trade to get rid of my sin and receive his righteousness. But, but there's also, that's our standing, but then there's also this position, this position with him in Christ. He's raised us up to be with him. And this idea of, of position is that we have been reconciled to God. Not only have we been regenerated, not only have we, have we been justified, we've also been reconciled to God. What does it mean to be reconciled? Reconciled just simply means to be brought back into right relationship. It means that, that there used to be hostility and now there's peace. God's made peace with us. Didn't have to, but he did. And so he reconciles, he brings us back into this intimate relationship that he once knew, that we once knew where? In the Garden of Eden, where there was perfect harmony, where, where our, our freedom was exercised and it was so glorious for us to, to walk with God and there was communion and intimacy and, and true joy and true happiness. Remember in Genesis it says about Eve that when she saw that the fruit was good to eat and that it would bring delight to her heart, I think it's something like that, or to her life, that it was, that it was it's something to be desired. I think that's what it is. Something to be desired, she took and ate the fruit and realized, this really didn't satisfy me. And she recognized, man, my satisfaction actually was with God. And so when we're brought back into this right relationship with God, that's why reconciliation is such a critical doctrine. David says, and I've shared this verse because this is, this is probably, if I were to synthesize all my favorite verses, this is probably my favorite verse in the Bible because there's such hope. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's why reconciliation is so important. We read in Peter in Peter, that Jesus came so that he, and died so that he might bring us to God. Reconciled. So regenerated, we're justified, and we're reconciled. It's our standing, it's our position, and it's glorious. This is the glorious truth of these verses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace he'd been saved, and raised us up with him. There's that union that takes place. And seated us with him in the heavenly places, how in Christ Jesus. And then here's the third thing that God does, promises to do one day. He promises us an inexpressible future hope. And it says this, that in the coming ages, 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's really, in a sense, right? I mean, I mean, uh, life is so good with Jesus. It really is. If you really know him, not just know him, right? Not just know him, but if you really know him, and he has become for you the, the joy spring of your life, and he really is your satisfaction. He really is your, 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 the bread that you, that like you're not hungry anymore because you're eating of him. That's glorious, but you know, as well as I do, this life can be hard. And I'm gonna go through this week, I know I am, and there are gonna be things that come my way. And there's gonna be a battle of sin in my life, just as there's gonna be a battle of sin in your life. But there's this glorious hope that one day, in the coming ages, he's gonna show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We talk about glorification. There's another theological word, this idea of being glorified one day. Um, the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the last stanza says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. In other words, there's coming a day when your battle with the consequences of sin. Anybody have a cold here this morning? Anybody? Yeah, okay, two people, good. That's pretty good for a crowd this side, or you're just shy. Um, I, I suppose I could, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. Anybody have cancer here? We just, you know, some of you know people who have cancer. This 2019 is gonna come with all of the struggles and heaviness of the consequences of sin, let alone the sin that we wrestle with. And you know what that's like. And one day, one day, the inexpressible riches of Jesus are gonna be demonstrated to us in that even those sinful things that we now experience are gonna be removed. We will be freed from sin completely. The very presence of sin is gonna be gone. That's good news. That's good news. It gives me hope. Gives me hope when the doctor says, Steve, you got cancer. I don't, but if that were to be the case, I know there's a better day coming, and I don't want to be trite or small about this, but brother, sister, you know Jesus here, Harvest Kelowna, we should embrace those kind of diagnoses way differently than a wor the world without Jesus does. Why? Because we have hope. We've got hope. This is not the end. This life is, is short. We know that, and the better day is yet to come. There is going to be one day immeasurable riches, of Jesus' grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what's our response? By grace, you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's two things. Our response then is we throw ourselves by faith alone on Jesus. And secondly, we faithfully obey Jesus for God's glory. So we throw ourselves by faith. We trust Jesus. What he said is true. We believe that he actually is alive today and that he, the promises he's given, you want joy, satisfaction, you're, you're gonna look all your life in this world for stuff to satisfy you and it will leave you wanting every time. Jesus says, come, I'm the bread. Come eat of me. You'll be satisfied forever. And so by faith, I say, okay, Lord Jesus, I'm gonna take you by your word. I recognize my sinfulness, I humble myself, I know that you took care of my sin on the cross, and by faith I turn to Jesus, 
alone for my salvation. No works. It says it really clearly here. Not of yourselves. Not any works. There's no self-effort in this story at all. It's all of God. It's all of his grace. All undeserved favor on you and on me. And all he asks us to do is bend our knee and embrace Jesus alone by faith alone. And then it says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're created, you're, you've been saved for good works. That's what it says here. So don't try to gain merit before God by the things you do. Humble yourself. And he's going to pour out his grace. He's going to save you. But oh, once his spirit comes and lives in you and you have new affections and new desires, it says now that that's going to motivate you because you're God's masterpiece. You're his you, it, it says here that, that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, not in your own moralistic self-effort, trying to keep God happy with you. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a new creation in your heart, new desires, new passions, new affections. Jesus living in you by his spirit, moving and working and empowering you to make God look great in Kelowna. How are people going to know that God is great? Well, one of the main ways he's people in your neighborhood, where you live, where you work, where you recreate, one of the main ways that people are going to know that God is great is through your life, by your obedience, by the joy that you have, and that you just simply be a conduit then to let people see how great our God is. And so in light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ that shone brightly and brilliantly, hopefully, at least to some degree, today and last week, might our hearts be filled with awe and wonder and thanksgiving to our great God. He's been so very kind towards us, hasn't he? He's been kind towards you. How are you doing today? Better than I deserve. And might our affections towards Jesus be moved into deeper adoration and devotion to him. My prayer would be like Paul in Romans when he ends the letter, that you would be strengthened today by the gospel as you contemplate and ponder its enormity, that your faith in God, your trust in God would be established more and more, that you'd love him more, that you'd trust him more faithfully, that you'd be willing to take greater risks for his cause and for his glory. And then finally, that, that we might be moved because of the gospel, might be moved and spurred on to deeper obedience to Jesus because we, his children, are his workmanship created for good, good works for God's glory. So Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for willingly going to the cross, for the joy set before you, Lord Jesus. You endured the shame and the despise of the cross for you knew it was on the other side of the cross and the other side of the grave. So I pray that you'd prepare our hearts now with this gospel ringing and resonating in our minds and in our ears and hopefully moving into our hearts. Would you prepare our hearts now as we continue to contemplate your broken body and your blood that was shed for us. For the praise and the glory and the honor of your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.